that when the brain activity is shut off to, quote, reboot, that means your heart is not pumping blood and your brain is not getting oxygen. I was never planning to have a sponsor for the show unless it was something I really believed in. I've always believed in therapy, and I really believe in BetterHelp.com. Not only do I believe in them, but I'm a client of theirs as well. Registering was simple, and you can choose from various packages, some that start as low as $60 a week. You can utilize email, text, instant messaging, or video chat for your counseling. Some packages include unlimited contact. One of the best features is that you can connect with your therapist no matter where you are. How cool is that? If you're out of town, you can still have your regularly scheduled session or connect with your therapist from anywhere in the world. Sign up now at BetterHelp.com slash The Depression Files and get 10% off your first month. That was BetterHelp.com slash The Depression Files. It's professional, accessible, affordable, and convenient. Why not give it a shot? Welcome to The Depression Files, where you'll hear interviews of men who have struggled with depression. We talk about everything related to mental health, from depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that sharing stories is one of the best ways to chip away at the stigma. I also believe that sharing stories helps to educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Depression Files. This is Al Levin, your host. I am very excited today. We have Sarah Price Hancock on the line. Sarah is a former professor of clinical psychiatric rehabilitation counseling at San Diego State University and a nationally certified rehabilitation counselor. I also want to just mention that today's interview, Sarah will be uh, attempting to use her voice for part of the interview, but she also has a device Um, Sarah lives with a cognitive communication disorder due to repetitive brain injury, which is from the amount of ECT that she had received. Sarah, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much. It's nice to be here. Excellent. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to have this conversation. You know, one of the things that I've been doing on this show recently is exploring options other than simply antidepressants for treatment of depression and other mental illnesses just because antidepressants you have to wait four to six weeks to see if it's the right antidepressant then you have Mm -hmm. to try multiple antidepressants and Mm -hmm. and i know there's like very little to no research going on with antidepressants so i've been exploring other forms of treatment, such as TMS and uh, psychedelic research that they're doing and so forth. And Mm -hmm. ECT was something that I really wanted to explore. And I know there are some 
advocates who say ECT is fantastic, and there mm-hmm. are others who who have real concerns with ECT, the side effects, and just kind of some of the the guidance that is or is not even there regarding mm-hmm. regulation. I was wondering if you could start uh, by sharing a part of your story. I know. I think hearing your story, your story is very compelling, and I think it will help the listeners have kind of a background of your experience before we get into the conversation of ECT itself. Sure. Um, well, I <laughs> sorry. I let me just share with you some of my symptoms and why I was given ECT. My psychotic symptoms were visual and auditory hallucinations, so hearing and seeing things which others did not. I also experienced delusions, which means I believed things inconsistent with the reality others experienced. My beliefs were consistent with the reality created by a brain growing neurotoxic from latent infection. I couldn't process past trauma and abuse properly because my brain was just marinating in toxins. Right. And this was a very long time ago, right? So like, I I believe it must've been about 25 years ago or so now Uh, that it all began. Way back in 1998. Right. So in 1998 and it was, so it was a misdiagnosis. I believe you were diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder and treated for that for 17 years when in reality, after 17 years of treatment, you were finally diagnosed appropriately with not a mental illness, but fungal hepatic encephalopathy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Originally, in 1998. No, that's fine. Go right ahead. Originally, in 1998, my doctors diagnosed me with bipolar disorder. They attempted to treat me with mood stabilizers, antidepressants, anti anxiety, and antipsychotic medication. When I became worse, rather than recognizing my body couldn't process four medications, increasing my neurotoxicity, doctors increased my doses and added more medications. But again, the underlying cause of my symptoms was neurotoxicity, so medication my body couldn't process just increased my neurotoxicity. My doctor told me things would get worse before they got better, so I just kept taking my medication as prescribed, hoping things would get better, terrified of what my brain had become. I was willing to do anything to get rid of what had become persistent, angry command hallucinations, my skin felt like it was crawling with fire ants. I couldn't ignore the graphic visual hallucinations. In 2002, the brain fog became so dense, it became increasingly difficult to reach through the thick fog and complete daily tasks, like preparing food or bathing, let alone complete my university classes and activities. I couldn't make sense of the world around me through the brain fog. Doctors told my parents I had agitated catatonia. Reflecting back on my history, we did not know about akathisia, or how it can be caused by neurotoxicity. Consequently, my doctors told my parents that medicating me for bipolar disorder actually revealed my real diagnosis. 
Schizoaffective Disorder Bipolar Type with Catatonia from 1998 to 2009, I was treated as a psychiatric patient who did not respond to medication. I was cycled through 37 different combinations of 5 to 7 classes of medications. Finally in 2009, my doctor told me they had not yet invented the medication which would help me. So I embarked on a journey to learn everything I could, from people living successfully with mental illness, I figured if they could teach me their strategies, I would use them to get better. I learned from people like Mary Ellen Copeland, creator of the Wellness Recovery Action Plan, and local peer support specialists, who taught me strategies to reduce the severity of my symptoms. Little by little, I learned wellness tools which augmented my medical treatment to the point that, my doctors felt it was necessary to reduce the medication. I worked with a team who helped me carefully titrate off my medication while increasing my micronutrition. It was an arduously lengthy and calculated process. I became completely stable on micronutrition. Wow. <laughs> so... 37 combinations of at least five plus different types of medication classifications, correct? Yeah. Wow. And I don't think, so thank you for that history. That That's an incredible story. I don't think you, I might've missed it. Did you mention all of the ECT that you had received at the time? Oh, no. Okay. When I, when I, I wasn't responding to medication. They began using shock. Right. So there were all of those comb combinations of medicines. They weren't working at first. They added more medicines and different combinations. They still weren't working. So they decided to use ECT. Correct. Electroconvulsive therapy. And can you tell us about your experience with ECT? Yes, I will. Um, also, I just want to let the listeners know that um, I have checked with Sarah multiple times, and when she does use her voice, and it is challenging, she's assured me it's not painful. So um, I would never want to put her through anything that would cause pain. Uh, it's just a challenge to use the vocal cords muscles, I believe. Yeah. Okay. It's more like my nervous system is just short-circuiting. Right, uh, right. Yeah. Well, um... You asked about the ECT. Right. What would you like to know? Well, my understanding is that you had 116 ECT treatments. Yeah. That, uh, that just kind of, that alone kind of blows my mind. Um, were the, what was that experience like for you? Were you excited about having ECT thinking, okay, I'm finally going to get better from this mental illness? Or were you scared of the ECT? I do not remember. Okay. Um, uh...
My parents say that they were told it was the only option left. Right. Mm. I'm sure they were feeling very desperate as you were as well. Mm. Right. I mean, you were, uh, my understanding is that you were in and out of the hospital every three to six weeks for 12 years. And you were mm. institutionalized at one point for 13 months. And uh, so, of course, yeah, your your family and you were feeling desperate. Um, And I know even in my case with just major depression, I remember really feeling like the doctor, I was so depressed and suicidal that the doctor could have told me anything at that point. And I would have said, let's do it, you know, if it's going to make me feel better. So I understand, and and I wasn't at the point of desperation where I'm sure you and your family were at. Precisely. Yeah, so you feel the need to to do the ECT. Now, with 116 times, were they seeing that in their mind, okay, Sarah's getting better, so let's do more? Or were they seeing, nope, it hasn't worked yet, let's do more? The thing about VCT, it briefly startles the brain by causing a seizure so violent that it shuts off all brain activity for up to more than six minutes. Then the person awakes from the coma. It causes a punch drunk type effect. Right. Which can be confused with mood improvement. Oh, wow. Okay, so they thought they were seeing some minimal i'm guessing improvement movement in the right direction and they thought give you more and you would continue to improve was their logic Uh. it's the euphoria people with mild traumatic brain injuries experience Uh. right But research shows that the euphoric effects typically wear off in four to eight days and 90% of the people who did not respond to medication. Basically, the positive effects last the same amount of time it takes to recover from some kinds of concussion. Okay, right. So over how long of a time period did you receive those 116 ECT treatments? I received about half of them from December 2002 to January 2005. The second half were given in the fall of 2007 to when I quit against medical advice in June of 2009. I quit because I could no longer imagine what my family members' faces looked like and was having extreme difficulty with reading. Wow, okay. And now you live with a chronic degenerative illness that's impacting the muscles of your vocal cords, but also I understand the muscles of movement. I know you mentioned that currently you're able to use a device, but you're anticipating that even your fingers will lose movement eventually. Yeah. Okay. I have general motor dysfunction, a recognized severe adverse effect of shock treatment. It is becoming worse as I age. Yeah. Okay. 
Right. And that is based on the amount you believe and the cumulative effects of all of your ECT treatments. Correct. It is consistent with some of the symptoms they see in electricians who are repeatedly exposed to high electric fields. Okay. Mm. Right. And so I would imagine you work with a neurologist as one of your doctors and, and they have drawn the direct connection and they say it is crystal clear that your illnesses that you're currently dealing with are definitely attributed to the ECT and not maybe uh, some other underlying cause or due to the fungal hepatic encephalopathy that it ended up was your true diagnosis? There is a burn specialist in Toronto, Canada, who has studied low-voltage electrical injury for several decades. Okay. He discusses how electrical injury alters how your body uses electrolytes. Additionally, since the shock is given in very brief pulses, it causes small holes to tear open in the cells along the current path. This is called irreversible electroporation. Wow, okay. So your cells begin to look like whiffle balls. They lose their contents and then die. Wow. When they die, the other cells around them must pick up the slack, but they also have these nanopores. So they are compromised too. Okay. The research says that the more ECT you have, the greater the risk of permanent brain damage. Clearly not everyone has had as much as I have, nor is all forms of ECT using the same electrical dosing. The problem is there are no recognized protocols for electrical dosing. Right. That That's a huge issue, I would imagine. Not having mm. any kind of guidelines. People receiving, like you did, 116 doses or treatments. Mm. Um, I have read that typically it's between like 6 to 12, I think, treatments yeah. um, is the typical average. But then, like you said, there are doctors who, who give more more than that and... And there's zero regulation on the number of treatments that a doctor can give. Correct. And there is zero regulation on the electrical field strength used. Oh, my goodness. So before we uh, get more into the, the lack of regulations, really, and some of the risks and dangers... I wonder if if we could go back a little bit and could you let the listeners know when was ECT first developed and what's the origin of ECT? 
It was first developed by a Mussolini-era Italian psychiatrist back in the 1930s. He was working with people who lived with symptoms of schizophrenia. He learned that pigs going to slaughter were stunned and easier to control if they were first shocked. I am sure his institution was understaffed, so he decided to try it first on dogs and then, when he could do it without killing the dogs, he started using it on his patients. Oh my goodness. Right around the time that they were still doing lobotomies, correct? Yeah, they did lobotomies through the 60s. Through the 60s, they were doing lobotomies. Yeah, and shock treatment is the only treatment of that era that is still being used. Right. Oh, my goodness. it's changed a lot since then. Okay. Now... Anesthesia. Anesthesia, okay. Mm -hmm. That's one of the recent changes. And they began using that in the 60s. Okay. And they also use a paralytic so that when you have the seizure, it is not going to break your bones. Okay, so it, it is sim- it's a type of medication, I'm guessing, that they inject you with, I'm guessing, in order to immobilize your body, paralyze your body, so that during the seizure, you're not thrashing around with the possibility of breaking bones. Okay, so those are two newer developments that were not used long ago. And again, Mm -hmm. that was anesthesia to knock you out so you're unaware Mm -hmm. of the situation and what's happening. And then also the paralyzing medicines to keep your bones safe. Yeah. And are those... Would you say positive? I mean, they sound positive. Positive changes in Mm. the delivery of ECT? The problem is, when a person living with epilepsy has a major seizure that will not stop, doctors give them anesthesia to stop the seizure. So now, when a person without epilepsy is given anesthesia, the body will not have a seizure with the small dose of electricity they used to use in the 30s. Okay. So you're saying, I hear you. So you're saying the they give one, a, a patient anesthesia so that they're kind of knocked out for the process, but that mm-hmm. then requires a higher dose of electricity to allow the patient to get to the point of having a seizure. So, mm-hmm. so the additional the the addition of anesthesia to the process of ECT has required doctors to use a stronger electrical pulse. Mm. Okay. Wow. Now machines produce 800 to 900 milliampere's charge, which pulses for up to 8 seconds. Yeah. And that's compared to how many did they, how much did they previously use? 
In the old days, it only had about 150 to 200 milliampere's charge. Wow. Okay. So significantly yeah. different. Yeah. Is there a particular part of the brain that is targeted or is it essentially just electrical volts going into the brain and they go where they go? <laughs> well, your brain operates on two to four millivolts of electricity and is made of 72% water. The electrodes are placed on the skull and up to 450 volts are driven through the brain and 900 milliampere's pulses when they use bilateral electrode placement. The electricity goes through the frontal lobes and the American Psychiatric Association says that the focal point is on the anterior of the frontal lobes and brainstem, that's a large swath of your brain. And there are no rubber bumpers or wires to direct this current. The 450 volts traverses your entire nervous system, along nerves built to conduct 2 to 4 millivolts, causing myelin sheath damage, in what is known as diffuse electrical injury. Wow. Okay. Uh, that's interesting. That that brings me to my next question. I'm curious what the difference is between bilateral ECT and unilateral ECT. And from some of the research I've done, it seems that the bilateral typically can cause more of the negative side effects. It's all the electrode placement. Bilateral is where the electrodes are placed on both sides of the forehead. The unilateral is when electrodes are placed only on one side of the brain. But the interesting thing is, in bilateral ECT, the APA recommends using two and a half times the electricity required to cause a seizure. In unilateral treatment, the APA recommends using six times amount of electricity required to cause a seizure. That's a big difference. Yeah, huge difference. They say that unilateral ECT does not cause as many memory effects, but the reality is, no one conducts comprehensive assessments for all of the known severe effects in every patient. There are many people who had unilateral ECT, which targets the part of the brain that is in charge of awareness. So many people are unaware of how to express what has changed, or even recognize that something has changed. Much like the people you hear about who are taken to the emergency room with something sticking out out of their forehead and they will tell you they are fine. Right, right. Oh my goodness. That is, that's really interesting. So, you know, one of the things I often hear from people who are pro ECT, they say, oh yeah, it's, it's not like it used to be. Now I know you mentioned that they use anesthesia, that they use mm -hmm. a paralyzing drug. Are there, mm -hmm. are there other differences that make it different from the old perceptions of ECT? Is it much different or are those the only two pieces have the machines or the the devices changed at all um, or is everything else pretty similar to when it was first developed mm. nothing has changed universally in ectus in first world countries like the united states Canada or the United Kingdom, psychiatrists are experimenting with what they call focused seizures, but if you are having a grand mal seizure, 
that is a storm of brain activity through the entire brain. And I'm not sure how one can actually focus 450 volts in a brain made of 72% water when the electrodes are not placed inside the brain and the charge must go through other structures to get to where the focus is supposed to be. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. I think there is a lot of hype about the ECT being new and improved, but the reality is, nothing has changed universally in every ECT clinic since the introduction of anesthesia and paralytic back in the 1960s. The reality is there are many ways to give ECT, but the hospitals do not publish their success rates. It's not like other medical treatments where you know one specific hospital in town has a better reputation than another. For example, one study back in 2006 compared memory of ECT patients at seven New York hospitals. At one hospital, the patients improved. At the other six, they had varied outcomes. One particular hospital had massive memory loss six months after treatment. No, I don't know about you, but if I want medical treatment, I want to know that I am getting the best possible treatment at the best possible hospital, but without dosing protocols. ECT is basically medical Russian roulette for desperate and vulnerable patients who hope against hope that they are at that one unnamed hospital in New York which happened to have an improvement, and not at the others which didn't. Let alone those poor patients whose hospital gave it in a way that they were permanently damaged six months after treatment. Wow. Yeah. So, so there's no data keeping, there's very limited regulations. Um, you know, that was a perfect segue too for my next question, which I know that, that the, the most significant negative side effect that I hear about with ECT is the memory loss. And I want to make sure people understand like when there are patients that, that I even know of that have lost significant amounts of their memory, and that, again, is not insignificant. They, I hear mm -hmm. patients talk about that is their loss of identity. When they don't yeah. remember how they met their spouse, when they don't remember the job they worked for 20 years, yeah. that's their identity that they have lost. I am wondering if there are other common side effects that you've seen or heard about through ECT? Yeah. When you are already dealing with depression and then you lose the memory, you lose those memories that can help you pull through the most depressive episodes by providing the hope of a family relationship or loved one, vacations, and so on. Though memory loss is the most discussed problem, likely because it is so obvious immediately during and after treatment, it's also the best studied, but there are other consequences of pulsing 800 to 900 milliampere's current through your brain. Many people lose the ability to do even simple math, they have balance problems, their speech slurs when they get tired or overwhelmed, they slam their shoulders into door jams because their depth perception and spatial awareness is damaged. Recently in our online support group we have people discussing overactive bladder problems, feeling aches, chronic pins and needles, ear ringing, profound fatigue, exercise intolerance and developing a dangerous form of cardiac arrhythmia called long QT syndrome which is caused by an alteration in how your heart muscles use electrolytes. Wow, so it's certainly not just the memory loss. Um, and I, I know that some of the 
the pro ECT people would say that yes, memory loss is a possible side effect, but it typically comes back after three months or so. But mm-hmm. um, have you seen that that is the case, or have you met people who have long term memory loss that seems permanent? My doctors told me and my family that the memory loss would improve with time. Initially, I could still remember parts of high school and childhood, but as time passed, instead of getting better, it got worse. Wow. Okay. So you have your own personal experience with the memory loss as well. And, and, just, just, I have basically lost 36 years of my life. The first 34 years were before I had ECT, then it took an additional two years to begin creating memory. The good news is, the brain is like a muscle. When a person has access to comprehensive brain injury assessment and appropriate rehabilitation, there are a lot of things we can do to improve things with proper support. That is why I am working so hard to help others get the same kind of rehabilitation after ECT that I have been able to access. There are strategies to learn, just like any other brain injury. There is recovery and the better support a person has with appropriate rehabilitation interventions. There can be significant improvements in quality of life, especially because the family, friends and loved ones begin to understand that their loved one has essentially had a series of closely spaced head traumas and needs addition support to process the world around them. With rehabilitation, there is a lot to look forward to. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you're really pushing to help people who have had negative consequences and side effects from the ECT receive rehabilitation so that they can continue to get better and stay on that path. That sounds awesome. Um, You know, we talked a little bit about the lack of regulation and oversight with ECT. Is there any kind of regulation at all? And are the machines tested? That is a good question. They say that California is the most tightly regulated state, but I received 116 ECT treatments in the most tightly regulated state. <laughs> right. Oh my goodness. So so other than clearly there doesn't seem to be any regulation around the number of times a person can receive ECT treatment. Are there any regulations over machines must be tested, you know, after every five years or anything like that, or the amount of voltage that's given. There's there's no regulation at all anywhere mm-hmm. around those pieces. There are some hospitals which have self-imposed limits for the number of treatments given, but there is literally zero regulation on the dosing limits. Basically, the doctor can crank the machine to 100% power and flip the switch. 
Like-minded, in fact, Columbia University publishes papers discussing how they use a, quote, modified, ECT machine, which uses more electricity than machines sold in the United States. Wow. Mm. That's incredible that there's no, I, I would think anybody, even people who are pro-ECT, would agree that there should be some type of regulations when when administering this, you're pumping electricity into the brain. Um, so I'm curious. Uh, oh, go ahead. The strange thing is psychiatry always says that ECT is, quote, tightly regulated, end quote. But right now I am working with colleagues in the United Kingdom working tirelessly to identify who is tightly regulating ECT use. Turns out all of the agencies we have been referred to point to another agency as the regulator. In the United States, there is no singular accreditation agency for safe ECT practice. Nor is anyone routinely monitoring safe practice or patient outcomes in a way which meaningfully measures whether patients are experiencing severe adverse effects from treatment. Wow. It's the black hole of medicine. Right. Wow. And the hard thing is, the FDA now requires hospitals to warn patients that ECT is a short-term treatment when used appropriately, but that the safety is not demonstrated in the long-term and that long-term follow-up may be needed. The problem with finding a doctor who can provide long-term follow-up is practically impossible because psychiatrists and other doctors are not required to study the neuropathology or physiology of repeated exposure to high electric fields. So we have this dilemma that doctors are privileged to provide a treatment where the follow-up is outside their scope of practice. That's been my barrier to follow-up care for the past decade. Wow, that's a really good point. They, they aren't really, I mean, doctors, psychiatrists are trained in medicines and administering medicines, not necessarily anything uh, related to uh, implementing electricity within the brain yeah wow so i'm wondering you know in your case sarah it's quite clear like had you been diagnosed properly you wouldn't have been treated for a mental illness and you would have never experienced ect um, so in your case it's clear that ect shouldn't have been used at all i'm wondering do you believe that there is a time and a place for ect or do you believe that it should just be banned altogether outright mm. i think that i would follow the recommendations of the harvard medical um, researcher who is the associate director of placebo studies. He said his name is Dr. Irving Kirsch and he recently published a paper with Dr. John Reed, my colleague in London. 
base the placebo trials do not meet modern trial placebo requirements and their recommendations since these are such great risks and since there is no standardized way of giving it, they recommend that it is suspended until those trials are completed. Okay. Now, I think the best way to finish that answer is by quoting a neurologist from Berkeley. Okay. He wrote an article which was published back in the American Journal of Psychiatry back in 1978. Okay. But if you recall, nothing has changed universally for ECT since then. So this quote is still applicable. applicable. Right. And so this is what he says. Quote, assuming free and fully informed consent, it is well to reaffirm the individual's right to pursue happiness through brain damage if he or she so chooses. But we might ask ourselves whether we as doctors sworn to the Hippocratic oh, should be offering it. Wow. Okay, right. So essentially, uh, you believe it should be banned until there at least is better regulation, better testing, and better studies. I... And informed consent is critical. I was told the worst thing that would happen would be I would have a headache. Okay. I was never told that in the event of injury, 
I would not have access to speech therapy, occupational therapy, physical therapy, vision therapy, and that I personally would have to fight for the right to even get a comprehensive assessment. Right. Because it's my word, the word of a psychiatric patient against a medical doctor saying that I'm just fine. Right. Even though the manufacturer and the American Psychiatric Association acknowledge seven independent risks associated with permanent damage. Wow. Right. So I think the the huge piece you were talking about there is informed consent, right? Mm -hmm. You were told, oh, you may end up with headaches from this ECT, and therefore you gave consent, you and or your family gave consent, but you weren't informed of all of the potential risks. And I was not informed that... And it just didn't even occur to me that when the brain activity is shut off to, quote, reboot, that means your heart is not pumping blood and your brain is not getting oxygen even though you are wearing an oxygen mask okay the brain activity stops for up to more than six minutes it only takes four minutes to cause brain damage wow So, these are important things in the consent process. Right. I know how desperate my family was to get me better. But the reality is there are so many causes of depression. So many causes of other mental illness. And uh, we really do not, haven't exhausted all options. Right. Perhaps we have exhausted all the tools in that particular doctor's toolbox. But there are so many ways to address the psychosocial problems, abuse problems, 
the poverty problem, the toxicity problems, the emotional traumas that people experience, which cause depression. Right. And imagining that you can just reboot a brain is a very cute way to imagine ECT, but it's basically, it's not like a computer where you're just turning it off and turning it back on. It's like a computer where you get a power surge which fries the motherboard. Right. And then you have to hopefully restart on the computer. Right. Right. So it's just, there are so many things that as a severely depressed or a psychotic person, you cannot wrap your brain around the consequences of your choices. Right. And that is why we are dependent upon other people giving us legal informed consent and maybe giving our families legal informed consent there are really lucky people who have won the medical russian roulette but there are literally hundreds of thousands of people who did not in 2004 Dr. Sackham, who is one of the leading, most published authors on ECT, he said that two million people get shot around the world. That was back in 2004. Just since 2018, there's been a 34% increase in the number of hospitals giving shock. Wow. So that's a lot of people who need comprehensive assessments for manufacturer-recognized severe effects. Right. Wow. So it's impacting a a huge number of people. Yeah, it's the best kept secret, I think, in part, because those injured are often so ashamed that they believed the hype. Right. That they refuse to share their experience due to the shame involved. Yeah, I I understand that completely. I think there's a lot of shame already around mental illness 
Mm-hmm. And, and then you you go through uh, a treatment like ECT and have negative outcomes. And then there's more shame that you even had the ECT and the negative mm-hmm. stigma around ECT already that people mm-hmm. don't even probably share the challenges they're dealing with. It is, that's pretty incredible. Can you speak a little bit about the cost of ECT and the reimbursements and and who makes that money and is there an incentive for doctors to promote ECT? I personally, there in America, there's so many ways to bill medical care. And there really is no singular place to get reimbursement. And every company reimburses at different levels. Okay. But that said, if you look at the financial transparency report for California, At the hospital in San Diego, which provided the most treatments in 2017, they stated that they provided 4,055 treatments. And they were reimbursed 13.9 13.9 million dollars wow. for those treatments. Now, if you look at doctor forms, well, first, that's about $3,600 per treatment. Right. And recently, Medicare Medicare and Medicaid changed their requirements for reporting. You can actually get paid more this year than you could last year. This year you can get reimbursed more without proper documentation then you could get with proper documentation last year okay which cracks me up because i cannot get a wheelchair without proper documentation right but i can get a treatment which will later cause me to use a wheelchair. Right, right, right. <laughs> Without proper documentation. My goodness. And the online medical forms discuss how doctors can create like an outpatient or inpatient clinic setting. And if they streamline it, they can get between seven and twelve, I think it's called RWE. And that's how the hours of billing. So in, in 2021, 
expense between four hundred and six hundred dollars an hour. Wow! If, if they get it going, and if you think about it, the doctor isn't even doing the anesthesia. That's the anesthesiologist, right? And they're not doing the recovery room monitoring. That's the nurse's job. They're literally flipping the switch. And in the forms, there are some doctors that brag about being able to do X number of patients an hour. And one person even said they know someone that can do 60 patients in a week. Oh, my goodness. So it's very lucrative. It is psychiatry's platinum goose that nobody is measuring or monitoring. Right, right. And And I I wonder if there are researchers out there who promote ECT who are non-biased and not making money off of it rather than doctors who are prescribing it and administering it that write the articles around pro-ECT. I'm just curious about that. That is curious. Good question. In my experience, those who are advocating ECT use typically are at large institutions which are getting massive millions of dollars in research funding from the NIMH or other types of sources. Then they're also getting reimbursed from the insurance um, for the use of the facility and treatment provided. So they're essentially double dipping. Right. They get the funding from the grants. They get the reimbursement from the insurances. And it's like in America, it's really driven by capitalism. If you look at the United Kingdom, their entire country only, if England only gives two then let's see twenty five hundred to three thousand people ECT each year then we have more people receiving ECT in Southern California than they do in all of England. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I mean, it, the thought makes reason stare. Then you have studies like the one that was just published in 2019 through the VA. It was said that more veterans in Puerto Rico or in the East Coast 
get shock treatment than veterans at other locations. Now, if it is an evidence-based practice, that means that the rate of use would be consistent across every single hospital. Right. But when they audited the practice in the England, they discovered there were some hospitals giving ECT 47 times more per population than other hospitals. And when I shared that, with the social worker who was working with me. She was first ashamed that she had never counted how many treatments I'd even had to question the doctor. But second, she said, let me read her text message. I, I sent her my text message about the article in the Psychiatric Times, which discusses all of this, including the financials of American shock treatment. And I said, do you think this will make the news? And she said, I doubt it. It's not a woke thing. I said, well, what did you think of my article? She says, it's a great article, but unfortunately the profession makes a lot of money from this. So it is unlikely they will stop. It is a very convenient way to control behavior. Right, right. And that is what I was like, my jaw just hit the ground. Yeah. Not She didn't say it's a convenient way to help depression. Right. She said, it's a convenient way to control behavior. Right, right. Control behavior and make money. Yeah. So I want to give you uh, an opportunity to respond. I know that um, you and your colleague, Dr. Reed, who is a psychologist, have written some articles uh, advocating to end ECT, to suspend it. And suspend. to That's suspend it. To yep. suspend it. To suspend it. Until the safety trials are finished. Right. Okay. And Dr. Michael Henry, who is an advocate of ECT and I believe administers the treatment, also has written some articles that claims that you and your colleague, Dr. Reed, are using old studies to advocate for the suspension of ECT studies that are from a time period of 1956 to 1985. And Dr. Henry also 
uh, believes that the interpreting of the data that you use is a misinterpretation? That is an excellent question. He is referring to Dr. Reed and Dr. Eisenkirch of Harvard Medical School. He's referring to their meta-analysis of all available placebo trials. Okay. Now, the interesting thing is there are no placebo trials for EZT after 1987. Okay. <laughs> so, so there is no available research and that specifically looks at placebo. And, and that placebo piece is a really important piece of a trial, I would imagine. Oh, yeah. Randomized controlled trial are the gold standard okay. for medical research. Right. Because you have the patient who gets the sugar pill and the patient who gets the actual pill. Right. But you can compare because the doctor doesn't know if it's, you know, which patient got the sugar pill or yeah. the, you know, the real pill. Right. In ECT, the way they do it is they put the patient to sleep and then the patient wakes up but without having been shot. Right. So the patient so, wouldn't know if they had the placebo, meaning they were not yeah. shocked at all while they were under anesthesia, or if yeah. they actually received the treatment. That would be yeah. a, a type of placebo study you're referring to. Yeah, and the machine, the device itself, would have to be constructed so that when the doctor flips the switch, the doctor wouldn't know gotcha. if it was delivered. Right, right. So not even the doctor knows if he's actually um, giving shocking the, the patient. Exactly. So that in itself, since the doctor has always known, you know, if the electricity was delivered or not. <laughs> the purpose of a double-blind placebo trial is so that not even the doctor during the evaluation can tell which the patient got, either the real treatment or the fake treatment. Right, right. So and is that the, the meaning of double blind, double meaning the patient and the doctor? Correct. Okay. Correct. So Dr. Arvin Kirsch, who is the associate director of placebo trial research at Harvard, he worked with Dr. Reed and another author named Laura. They evaluated all available trials using Cochrane standards for placebo trials, which are the gold standard requirements 
for placebo studies, randomized controlled studies, double-blind studies. Right. And then because he understands and teaches how to create medical trials which meet double-blind placebo criteria, he also added some specific things specific to shock treatment. Right. And when they evaluated all available trials, they realized that they simply did not meet modern criteria for double-blind placebo trials. Right. Now, I'm not sure of Dr. Henry's qualifications. I know he's a psychiatrist, but I don't believe he specializes in randomized placebo trials, teaching them at the Harvard Medical School. So I I believe Dr. Kirsch when he says that none of them met modern standards. And if you read that particular study, I was am not one of the authors, but they each of the reviewers had like a rubric against which they all evaluated each trial, checking the boxes whether they met these twenty-five or 26 criteria typically require for a placebo study that is meets modern requirements. And then each of those three authors got together and compared their notes and their score sheets for each of these trials. So it's not like, you know, one researcher that has a problem with shock is beating a drum here. This is people who are very well educated in modern placebo trial requirements with others who are more familiar with ECT research collaborating together to evaluate the validity of placebo trials. And now, instead of doing placebo trials, they compare like one form of treatment compared to like one form of ECT compared to a different form. But That's like just comparing one form of antidepressant to a different form of antidepressant without having that third group that doesn't get any antidepressant. Right, right. So it's it's critical. It's the gold standard to have both. Right. That makes a lot of sense. So when when he's saying you're you or or Dr. Reed in your article, um, the studies that you use when he is claiming they're old, 
you're saying they're the only reliable ones that that did the placebo and double blind process properly anything more recent didn't do that therefore it's essentially invalid research well there it's not that it's invalid it's that it's not placebo okay right it's, so it's not it's a not, high quality research there, yeah there are literally no placebo trials done uh-huh. after so it's not we did not ex- or the authors of that paper did not exclude any placebo trials. Right. They right. literally used all of the gotcha. trials. And I think it's kind of funny when doctors say, oh, you're using outdated research. If there's no other research available exactly. on that topic, I was rebuked for using the APA task force report on shock treatment from 1978. But it's the only place right. that shows that the the focal point of bilateral treatment is the brainstem. <laughs> right. Just because nobody else puts that in their paper does not change the fact that that's what was found. Or like these older studies about the neuropathology of treatment where they actually set the brain and then make slides with stains to look at the damage, if there is any, on a slide under a microscope. Those studies were stopped in the 60s. They no longer study that. Right. And so, consequently, we have no idea the extent of non-damage or damage caused by modern shock. We do know that machines are four to six times more powerful than the ones that show significant damage, but there are no pre-market approval animal studies or safety trials with data available to researchers right, through right. the FDA. So doctors who claim we're using outdated research are omitting the fact that there's no modern research. Right, right. A really important point. Mm-hmm. Um, what about... So... I did see also, I see other, some other fairly reliable sources that seem to advocate essentially for the use of ECT. I know, um, I believe the website up to date or the publication mm-hmm. is pretty reliable. Yeah. And I'm looking at something dated like April and May of 2021. Mm-hmm. And under a section that starts with what is ECT, the very first sentence says electroconvulsive therapy is a safe and effective treatment for certain psychiatric disorders. 
Yes. Um, and if you look at that article, the man who wrote it receives honorarium from the device maker company. His name is Dr. Kilmer. Right, Dr. Kelly, you're right, yep. His conflict of interest statement on his professional presentations for the APA are quite revealing. He He gets honorarium for from the device manufacturer. He gets multi-million dollar grants to study ECT from federal grants. And he also gives money to talk about ECT from psychiatric times and from other places. Then additionally, he works at a location where the patients, as they receive ECT, get to be billed for those ECT treatments. So when he's giving shock, he additionally gets the $400 to $600 an hour for giving treatment in addition to the other things. So, but to be clear, the, that article is particularly interesting because I just actually pulled it up recently. I was kind of chuckling at some of the things it said because they minimize the amount of electricity and they minimize the amount of the seizure activity. So let me pull it up. Yeah, I noticed uh, the minimization yeah. as well, and it surprised yeah. me. Yeah, it's just and and you bring up you bring up a really valid point about knowing who the authors are, and whether or not there are biases and conflicts of interest. Yeah, I mean, for example, Doctor Sankum again, he's the most prominent shock doc, uh, researcher, most published shock researcher in recent history. Even he has begun to recognize in 1998 that shock causes permanent problems depending right. on how it's given. What is his name again? Harold Sackham. Harold Sackham? Yeah, he's okay. like Columbia psychiatry. Okay. But let me pull up this. He, he says, and there's two schools of thought. There's, he calls them the fascist left that want to completely ban shock treatment. Right. And there, he calls them anti-psychiatry and anti-patient treatment options. Then we have the people on the alt-right who are saying it's completely safe and effective and anyone should have it, even this first 
point of treatment. Wow. I'm more in the know. I have a friend who healed, helped him. And I wouldn't deny his experience. I was harmed by it. Right. I think that with modern medicine, we can create modern protocols using already available research. Right. Like Sackham's study from 2006 on community outcomes. It recognized that one hospital out of seven had involvement in memory. Right. Well, so why don't we take that method and make sure everyone is using that exact method? Right. That problems in people like me. Right. And it makes you wonder about these hospitals. Is it a hospital in a rich area? That has the best treatment, right. or a hospital in a poor area, or maybe in a, in a more urban environment. Right, that, a racially that, diverse location. Yeah, that yeah. has worse outcomes. Right. I mean, th- there's so many questions when a, a medical treatment. Is not replicable. Right. Yeah, absolutely. They're calling it evidence based, but when you research the evidence, there is not a single study which replicates the exact way the treatment was given in a previous study. Yeah. So, the results are not replicable right. and certainly not replicable in community settings where everyone's doing their own thing. Nobody's giving comprehensive assessment. Right. They're using the MMSE hopefully to measure change, but even that can be passed by lobotomized patients. Right, right. So, so minimal uh, minimal checks yeah. on outcomes, I hear you saying, too. Um, yeah. is, so there is probably, I'm guessing there's no data on this, but I don't know. Is there any idea to know how many people have significant negative outcomes? Like what percentage of patients who receive ECT have these significant negative outcomes? Well, they say it's very rare. But the reality is if you do not measure it, you don't know. Right. So typically researchers say, the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. But in shock treatment, they will say side effects are rare because they're not, we 
routinely measured in their outcome. Right. So, like, if you're only giving the MMSE and Beck Depression Inventory to measure your outcomes, you're not identifying using research assessments validated specifically for sensitivity to deficits in ECT patients. Right. That's a pretty minimal standard, you're saying, that a a lobotomized patient could pass that assessment. Yeah. Right. It's a pretty darn low bar. Exactly. And the, like, it's just, for example... One of the severe adverse effects listed in the user manual is, quote, general motor dysfunction. Okay, the easiest way to measure that is just a three-minute test where the patient picks up small blocks and moves it to the other side of the box. It's called the box and block test. I've never seen any ECT research, including the most common form of testing for motor dysfunction. Right, (laughs) right, right. So... There are so many side effects that just are not discussed because they're not measured. If if it's not measured, it's not valued. And that is the serious problem with people living with adverse effects in their lives and the consequences of treatment are not being valued because they are not being automatically given comprehensive assessment right. for all possible risks. Right. And then that leaves the patient in the precarious situation of going to their doctor saying, hey, I think something's wrong. And the doctor saying, well, you are a mental patient who has problems with delusions and reality. I'm going to say that you're malingering or, you know, or then there's all of the other medical professionals unfamiliar with the ECT research and the omissions of studying all severe effects who read over and over and over again that ECT is safe and effective. Right, right. But in, it's just, if you tell a lie often enough and big enough, people will believe it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the one of the reasons I asked about whether or not there is a known percentage of people with severe negative outcomes is 
Because if it was super, super tiny, then it might mean, well, with all of the benefits of it, yes, why suspend it? Kind of like Mm -hmm. our vaccines where they say, you know, there are some issues, some negative outcomes, but it is such a minute population that have that negative outcome. It doesn't outweigh the risks, uh, the, the benefits of getting the vaccine. But again, Mm -hmm. and, and I do know that, you know, if you scour the web pretty quickly, you'll find many people sharing their stories of Mm -hmm. massive loss of memories that have not come back. Mm -hmm. And, um, but like you said, without any kind of real assessment, it's impossible to even know that. And it could be Mm -hmm. a massive amount of people with these negative outcomes, but there's never a, a, the assessment isn't being done. That's why. It's kind of of funny because there's a study that was done by the Royal College of Psychiatry in England. They sent out forms, you know, surveys to people who uh, had ECT. And it's like, depending on the study, I think this one said that there's 18.5% of the people reported permanent memory problems. Well, that's 18.5% of the people functioning well enough to return the survey on time. Right, right. That's a good point. If you look at their response rate, it was like only 40% of the patients returned the form. Right. And I am supposedly have a good memory. My <laughs> testing says that I've recovered the ability to create memories and then I now have really good memory when I'm not distracted, when I'm, you know, when it's a completely silent room. That is the case. I can have good memory on good days. But I still have problems receiving something in the mail, filling it out, remembering to put it back in an envelope, put a stamp on it, and remembering to get it back into the mail. Right, right. This is someone who received a graduate degree. After shock treatment, that's a lot of rehabilitation in order to get back to school. And I still have a problem returning. And I'm always finding letters I wrote to people that never made it in the mail. And it's just, we need to, when we evaluate these claims made, by both sides, we need to say what is not being measured. Right. What is not being reported. Because that is really the crux of the issue. Yeah. If you want good evidence-based medicine, it has to be universally given in a way that other people in any location can replicate. Yeah. Yeah. And it has to measure all possible outcomes. Absolutely. 
So, um, you know, one other quote I wanted to share with you, actually, it's two quotes from WebMD. Now, I, mm -hmm. I don't know how how reputable WebMD actually is, but, but one of their quotes says... They're pretty reputable. Yeah, I thought so too. So one of their quotes says, ECT is among the safest and most effective treatments available for depression. But they do go on and they say... Many of the procedure's risks and side effects are related to misuse of the equipment, incorrect administration, or improperly trained staff. Yeah, I'm really curious why in probably the very first paragraph of every single ECT paper, it will always use the word most safe and effective. Yeah, that that that's pretty when, like surpri very surprising. I almost said shocking, which mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know if that would be appropriate. But mm -hmm. yeah, it's very surprising to me too. Um, like it, it, it just it seems the safest and most effective. That, that seems simply no data to support that. Right. Right. For example. They just published a study in, um, let me get the right journal. Let's see. Let's see. I figured the second quote would really resonate with you, though, when they talk, because you talk a lot about doctors not really being trained in electricity and, and what it does to the brain. Right. Yeah. So the fact that that they do say the risks and side effects are related to the misuse of equipment, the incorrect administration or improperly trained staff, I bet, resonates with you. Yeah, it does. And they don't identify that, you know, they blame like people were blaming my care and my severe adverse effects on badly done shock. I got my shock done at the premier psychiatric hospital okay. in San Diego. Right. My doctor was the trainer of other doctors mm -hmm. and residents. So it's not that it's an anomaly, it's that it's not regulated. Right. So in 2019, this is a very recent study in anesthesiology, they published a paper examining the major adverse cardiac events and mortality associated with ECT. Wow. They looked at 106,000 patients, more than that, and 786,000 shock treatments in 2,641 publications. Wow. We're talking math, right? Yeah, absolutely. And this is their summary statement. 
which cracks me up and says major cardiac events and death after ECT are infrequent. And then it follows it with and occur in one in 50 patients. Whoa. And after about one in 200 to 500 treatment. So that sentence alone is a contradiction. Can you imagine if we had one in 50 people have a minor surgery? getting enough anesthesia to put them out for three to five minutes. If we had one in 50 of those people having major cardiac events or dying. Oh my goodness. Would we say that was not frequent? Uh, right. <laughs> I hear you. They certainly contradict one another. And, and that's why these other pretty vague statements uh, surprised me too when they say it is one of the most effective and safest treatments like yeah, th that's not really what it seems to be when they're basing it on these medical trials that did not meet modern research criteria right, right. so you know and then they'll say but it's been in use forever and so that's why we know it works yeah well, seriously, I mean, how many treatments, medical treatments, were used for long periods of time until they realized, guess what, this is hurting people. Right. The risk outweighs the benefit. Yeah. You know, so just because it's been used for a long time does not mean it's safe and it's not effective, I mean, because the over long term, the study with the veterans that was published in the Journal of ECT, they tracked U.S. veterans for two years to look at mortality outcomes associated with ECT, the largest at the VA, which is the largest U.S. healthcare system. Right. And they are saying that in the two-year follow-up, patients who receive shock treatment or repetitive brain injury from high pulsed electricity or our cohort included 1,457,053 patients who received mental health care in the VA. Of these, 1,616 received shock. Most of those patients were located in Puerto Rico or in the East Coast for some reason. And then it says, the population who received ECT was more likely to be female, 
1.7 times more likely to be female and significantly less likely to be African American. And then it says, during the two years following their first index mental health counter, encounter, there were 75,728 deaths, including 1,900 suicide deaths. Of all prevalence, all cause mortality was similar between people who didn't get ECT and people who did, but mortality was significantly higher, 5.7 times higher among patients who received ECT. Wow. Now, some people would say, oh, those are the sickest patients. Only the sickest patients get shot. But <laughs> you're forgetting that they don't only have the sickest patients in Puerto Rico or the East Coast. <laughs> right, right, right. So there are people in other areas of the VA system who were extremely sick but did not suicide or had a lower risk of suicide, 5.7 times lower risk of suicide because they did not get shock treatment. Right. So 96% of veterans treated the VA with ECT were in Puerto Rico. Wow. Yeah, 96%. Hello? And if you're in New England, you're two times more likely to receive ECT. Wow. So, you know, if the rate of use were equal across the entire system, then, you know, that would be, you'd be able to say, oh yeah, it is the most sick people that get ECT. Right. But because most of the people getting shocked are in Puerto Rico and the New England, you know, that throws the that throws their hypothesis that only the sickest people get it out Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. Well, Sarah, I wanted to ask you where people can find out more about, about you and about ECT. I think I have two different websites, if I'm right, psychrecoveryandrehab.com. That is my personal website. That's your personal website? Mm-hmm. psychrecoveryandrehab.com and then um, there is lifeafterect.com correct that is a group of us who are working together to create an educational resource for people specifically looking for more information about uh, shock therapy shock mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. great. And, and also looking for help okay. if, if, if and when they get injured. Okay. 
That sounds great. So psychrecoveryandrehab.com, which is your personal site, and then lifeafterect.com, uh, which mm. is a group of you who have collaborated to create resources for people who may have had a brain injury or, or some type of injury after ECT. Yes, and okay. you can always follow me on Twitter. <laughs> okay, awesome. And also, um, I have a petition that has more than 13,000 signatures. Okay. And the petition is at change.org backslash patient safety ECT. And the petition is to standardize and thoroughly regulate, provide informed consent and comprehensive assessment. Mm-hmm. Okay. And rehabilitation okay. after treatment. Awesome. That well, was at change.org slash patient safety ECT. Correct. Okay. So that is because, um, again, I find myself more in the middle of the road. I'm not interested in denying viable treatment options. I am interested in ensuring that, for example, my friend who had ECT and feels it helped him, I want more people to have that experience than have my experience. Right, right. You just want to make sure it's regulated and and tested and and people are assessed to to check Mm -hmm. its efficacy and its safety. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. which makes I, sense. I agree with Sackham. He said that too many, there are many psychiatrists who underestimate ECT. Right. And I think if they were required to study the pathology in medical school, yeah, they would have a more clear understanding. Yeah. Because we need to make sure that those receiving shock have appropriate aftercare and follow-up support because electrical injury has delayed effects. Yeah. I I think uh, it would be hard for anybody to argue against the type of petition you're asking for. Again, you're not saying let's ban ECT. Let's let's research it, study it, uh, assess people who receive it and make sure it's regulated and safe. Yeah, I mean, we can use um, already completed research. They've been researching it for 80 years. There's so much data out there. Yeah. And I think they should start with Sackham's study from 2006 that looked at ECT in community settings. Because that one, they can right away know which way of giving it is more safe 
in perspective than the other way. Right. Well, I will make sure that I get the websites, your Twitter handle, and um, and your the petition on the website when we publish this episode. And then I'd love to wrap up with the final question that I ask all of my guests, which is mm -hmm. if somebody is out there listening to this show and, and dealing with depression right now, what what one piece of advice would you give them? I know what they're going through because I was there. And I think the best thing that I did was learn as much as possible about all possible treatment options, including wellness recovery action plan, personal medicine um, techniques, and Build your wellness toolbox as big as possible. Right. Because the more tools you have in your personal toolbox, and the more practiced you become at using those tools, the better results you will have. And don't give up. This is the brain. It takes time yeah. to process and heal. And if you do not have hope at this time, please borrow some of mine. <laughs> because life does get better. There is a sunrise after the darkest day. Yeah. And that's one thing that you can always look forward to. Right. Courage is the tiny voice at the end of the day that says, I'll try again tomorrow. Yeah, that's awesome advice. And uh, you are an incredible model, Sarah, of courageousness and of resiliency. I appreciate your kind feedback. Yeah, and it's taken a long time to develop these skills. Yeah, well, it take, not pop out like this. <laughs> it takes time and effort, right? I always say that it takes time and effort, and, and uh, you're doing awesome. Well, I really uh, I appreciate all of the work and research you've done around ECT, and I really want to thank you for all of your time uh, that you've taken this morning to be on the Depression Files. Thank you so much for inviting me. All right. Well, make sure you stay healthy. <laughs> okay. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. If you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text 741-741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you enjoyed the show, please hit the like button. In addition, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files. <laughs>